You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled A Modern Art of Education. This is Lecture 10, entitled Physics, Chemistry, Handwork, Language, Religion, given on August 15, 1923. From what I have said about how to teach children about nature, plants, and animals, you probably realize that the aim of a Waldorf school is to relate educational methods to the evolutionary laws and forces as they operate through the stages of a child's development. I spoke of the significant turning point between the ninth and tenth years, when children begin to distinguish themselves from the world. Before that age, in their thinking and feeling, there is no sense of separation between themselves and the world's phenomena. Until the ninth year, therefore, we must speak of plants, animals, mountains, rivers, and and such in the language of fairy tales, appealing above all to children's fantasy. Animals, plants, and springs must speak, so that the same kind of being that children are first aware of in themselves also speaks to them out of the external world. Keep in mind how we lead children at this age into botany and zoology, and you will realize that the goal is to bring children into the right relationship with the world around them. They come to know plants in connection with the earth and study them from this point of view. The earth becomes a living being who produces the plants, just as a human head produces hair through a vital principle within it, although plant forms of the earth have a much richer life and variety. This relationship with the plant world and with the whole earth is of great value to the well-being of a child's body and soul. If we teach children to see humanity as a synthesis of the animal species spread out over the earth, we help them find a truer relationship with the lower creatures. Before eleven or twelve, the common thread of all nature study should be this relation to humankind excuse me this relation of humankind to the world Let me read that again before 11 or 12 the common thread of all nature study should be this relation of humankind to the world then comes the age when for the first time we may show children the world's outer processes independently of human beings between 11 and 12 and not until then we may begin to teach about minerals and stones. Plants, as they grow out of the earth, are related in this sense to stones and minerals. Earlier teaching about the mineral kingdom in any other form than this seriously harms a child's inner flexibility of soul. Anything that has no relationship with humankind is by nature mineral. We should begin to deal with the mineral kingdom only after children have properly found their place in the world, when, in thinking and especially in feeling, they have grasped the life of the plants, 
and when the will has been strengthened by a true view of animals. These are the two kingdoms of nature closest to children. What applies to the minerals applies equally to physics and chemistry and to the, in quotes, causal connections of history and geography. In other words, to any process that must be studied as separate from humankind. Any study of the great historical connections that cannot be related directly to human beings, as I described yesterday, should be delayed until the eleventh or twelfth year. Only then can we study can we begin to study subjects that have little to do with the human. The right age for children to begin school is around the time of the second teeth, at about seven. Until then, school is not really the place for them. To take a child before this age requires all kinds of compromises. I will try to explain certain basic principles. When children first come to school, our teaching accommodates the fact that as yet they do not distinguish themselves, excuse me, they do not distinguish between themselves and the world at large. When the children are between nine and ten, we begin to awaken a living intelligence through knowledge of plants and strengthen their will through knowledge of animals. In mineralogy, physics, and chemistry, we can work only on the intellect, and then, as a necessary counterbalance, we introduce art. I will say more about this tomorrow. From eleven or twelve on, we find that children are able to form logical concepts of cause and effect, and this must be elaborated through physics and chemistry. But those processes, which should lead gradually to astronomy, must not be explained to children before they reach eleven or twelve. Before then, if we describe simple chemical processes, say combustion, we must use pure imagery, with no reference to the logic of cause and effect which should not be introduced until they reach eleven or twelve. The less we say about causality before then, the stronger and more vital and more inward will the soul become. If, on the other hand, we introduce causality to younger children, dead concepts and even dead feelings enter the soul and have a withering effect. The goal of Waldorf methods has always been to create a plan that works out of the human being. In every detail we consider the various life stages and fit the lessons to the needs of human nature itself. On the other hand, it is always our intention to enable children to enter life in the world in the right way. To do this we must lead from physics and chemistry into various forms of practical work for children who have reached fourteen or fifteen. In classes, for these children, therefore, we introduce hand-spinning and weaving. These activities lead children intelligently into practical life. Our students learn spinning and weaving and become familiar with how these things are done in a factory. They should also have some knowledge of basic chemical technology, the preparation and manufacture of dyes and similar processes. During school, children should acquire truly practical concepts of their environment. The affairs of ordinary life often remain a mystery to many people today because the education they receive does not lead at the right time from what is essentially human to life's practical activities in the world. 
In a sense, this will certainly harm the soul's development. Consider the human body's sensitivity to some element in the air that it cannot assimilate. In society, of course, conditions are somewhat different. There we are forced to put up with many incongruities, but we can adapt ourselves if we have been introduced to them at the right age and in the right way. Consider how many people there are today who get into a train without the faintest idea of how it operates or what makes it move. They see a train every day and have absolutely no idea of the mechanics of a locomotive. This means that people are surrounded by inventions of the human mind but have no contact at all with them. It is the beginning of an antisocial life simply to accept inventions of the human mind without at least understanding them in a general way. In a Waldorf school, therefore, when the children reach 14 or 15, we provide instruction and experience in matters that play a role in practical life. Today the age of adolescence is regarded from a very limited, slanted perspective. In fact, human beings open up to the world at puberty. Previously children lived more internally, but now they are ready to understand other people and the world's phenomena. So we act according to the principles of human development when, before children reach puberty, we concentrate on all that relates the human to nature. But at the age of 14 or 15, we must focus our energy on connecting children with the inventions of the human mind. This helps them understand and find their place in society. If educators had followed this principle 60 or 70 years ago, today's, in quotes, social, social movement would have taken a very different form in Europe and America. There has been tremendous progress in technological and commercial efficiency during the last 60 or 70 years. There has been real progress in technical skills. National trade has become world trade, and a global economy has grown out of national economies. In the past 60 or 70 years, the outer appearance of society has been transformed, yet our educational methods have continued as though nothing happened. We have completely neglected to familiarize children with the practical affairs of the world at the age when this should be done, at the age of 14 or 15. At Waldorf schools, we are not so narrow-minded that we in any way belittle higher classical education, because for in many ways it is very useful. For students who desire it or whose parents desire it, we prepare them both for a higher classical education and for final certificates and diplomas. But we never forget today's need to understand why the Greeks, whose singular purpose in education was to serve practical life, did not spend all their time learning Egyptian, a language of the distant past, whereas today we make a special point of teaching our boys as well as girls not about the present but about a world of the past. It's no wonder that most people have so little understanding of how to live in the world today. The world's destiny is now beyond human control, simply because education has not kept pace with changing social conditions. In Waldorf schools we follow our feeling that we can indeed help our students develop fully as human beings 
and find their place in the ranks of humankind. This must be our primary consideration when teaching languages. As far as the children's native tongue is concerned, of course, our teaching is adapted to the child's age. We teach, as I have already described, in relation to other lessons. An outstanding feature of language instruction, however, is that at a Waldorf school we begin teaching two foreign languages, French and English, as soon as children begin school at six or seven. Thus we try to give them something that will become increasingly necessary in the future. To understand the purely human aspect of teaching languages, keep in mind that the faculty of speech is rooted in the very depths of our being. Native language is so deeply rooted in the breathing, blood circulation and vascular system that the way the mother tongue is expressed in children affects them not only in spirit and soul but also physically. We must realize, however, that the world's different languages permeate human beings and express the human element in various ways. This is quite obvious in the case of primitive languages, and it is true of the more civilized languages, though this often escapes notice. There is one European language that arises purely from the element of feeling. With time, intellectualism has taken hold of its element of feeling but feeling is nevertheless the basis of that language. Hence the elements of intellect and will are less firmly implanted in the human being through that language itself. By studying other languages, the elements of will and intellect must be developed. And there is another language that emanates particularly from the element of formative fantasy. The configuration of the sounds themselves carry everything. Because of this, children acquire an innately formative power as they learn to speak. Another language in civilized Europe is rooted mainly in the element of will. Its very cadences, vowels and consonants reveal this. When people speak, it's as though they were driving back the ocean's waves with exhaled air. The element of volition lives in that language. Other languages evoke more the elements of feeling, music, or imagination. Each language is related to the human being in a particular way. You will probably say that I should name these languages, but I purposely avoid that, because we have not reached the point where we can face civilization with the objectivity needed to bear the impersonal truth of such matters. From what I have said about the nature of various languages, you can understand that the way one particular genius of language affects human nature must be balanced by the effects of another. That is, if our goal is truly human and not nationalistic. This is why a Waldorf school begins with three languages, even for the very youngest children. We devote a great deal of time to this subject. It is good to begin teaching foreign languages at this early age, because up to nine or ten years of age, children still carry some of the qualities of the first period of life, from birth to the change of teeth. During those years, children are mostly imitative. They learn their native language completely by imitating. Without much demand on the intellect, children imitate the language around them, and at the same time learn not only the outer sounds of speech, but also the inner musical soul element of the language. 
Their first language is acquired, if I may be allowed the expression, as a finer kind of habit, which passes into the depths of the whole being. When children come to school after the change of teeth, language lessons appeal more to the soul and less to physical nature. Nevertheless, until nine or ten, children bring with them enough imaginative imitation to enable us to teach a language so that it will be absorbed by their whole being, not just by their forces of soul and spirit. This is why it is so important not to let the first three years of school slip by without foreign language instruction. On purely pedagogical principles, we begin foreign language lessons in a Waldorf school as soon as children enter the elementary classes. I hardly need to say that teaching languages should be closely adapted to the children's ages. People's thinking today has become chaotic in relation to reality. Because of their materialism, people imagine they are firmly rooted in reality, whereas they are really theorists. Those who are proud of being practical are mainly theoretical. People get it into their heads that something is right, but fail to form it within the context of real life. And so, especially in education, they become unrealistically radical and go to the opposite extreme when they find something wrong. It has been found that when language lessons, especially Latin and Greek, are based entirely on grammar and syntax, they tend to become mechanical and superficial. As a result, exactly the opposite principle has been applied simply because thinking is not consistent. People see that something is incorrect and go to the other extreme, thinking that this will correct the problem. The result is that now they employ the principle of teaching no grammar at all. This is irrational, because it means only that in one area of knowledge one is left at the level of mere awareness and not allowed to advance to self-awareness. Between the ninth and tenth years, children go from the level of awareness to self-awareness. They distinguish themselves from the world. At this age, we can begin gradually, of course, teaching grammar and syntax rules, because the children are reaching a point where they think not only about the world, but also about themselves. As far as speech is concerned, thinking about oneself means not merely being able to speak instinctively, but also being able to apply rational rules in language. It makes no sense, therefore, to teach language with no grammar at all. By avoiding rules altogether, we cannot give children the necessary inner firmness for life's tasks. It is most important to keep in mind that children do not pass willingly from awareness to self-awareness until nine or ten. To teach grammar before then is absolutely irrational. We must be able to recognize the change that occurs around nine or ten, so that we can lead children gradually from an instinctive, direct acquisition of language into the rational aspect of grammar. This also applies to a child's native language. We do not, excuse me, we do real harm to children's souls if they are crammed full of grammatical and syntactical rules before this important turning point in their lives. Speech should be a matter of instinct and habit, learned solely through imitation. It is the purpose of language to inaugurate self-awareness between nine and ten, and as a rule, self-awareness comes to light 
in grammar and syntax. This is why Waldorf education uses the two or three preceding years to introduce language lessons at the right age, according to the principles of human development. Perhaps you see why Waldorf education aims to gradually enable teachers to read the human beings as such, not according to books or the rules of an educational system. Waldorf teachers must learn to read the human being, the most wonderful document in the world. From this reading, teachers develop a deep enthusiasm for teaching, because only the contents of the, in quotes, book of the world can stimulate the overall activity of body, soul, and spirit needed by teachers. Any book study should be a means of enabling teachers to read the great book of the world. Teachers who can do this will teach with the necessary enthusiasm, and only such enthusiasm can generate the energetic impulse that brings life into classrooms. The principle of the, in quotes, universal human, I describe this in terms of various areas of education, is expressed by Waldorf education. It does not in any way promote a particular philosophy or religious conviction. In this sense, as an art of education derived from spiritual science, it has been absolutely essential for Waldorf schools to remove any hint of being in quotes anthroposophic schools. They absolutely cannot be anything of the sort. There must be daily efforts to avoid falling into anthroposophic biases, shall we say because of excessive enthusiasm and honest conviction on the part of teachers. Such conviction is present in the Waldorf teachers, of course, because they are anthroposophists. But the fundamental question of Waldorf education is the human being as such, not human beings as followers of any particular philosophy. Therefore, with the various religious denominations in mind, we were willing to compromise with today's needs and early on we focused on educational methods based on the universal human. First of all, religious instruction was left to the pastors, Catholicism to Catholic priests, Protestantism to Protestant ministers. But a great many pupils in the Waldorf School are, in quotes, dissenters, as we call them in Central Europe, children who wished to receive no religious instruction if it were limited to Catholicism and Protestant teaching. Waldorf education was originally developed for the children of working people connected with a certain business, though for some time now the school has been there for children at all economic levels. Consequently, most of the children had no religious affiliation. As frequently happens in Central European schools, those children were taught nothing in terms of religion, and so for their sake we introduced free religious instruction with free in quotes. We never try to introduce theoretical spiritual science into the school. This would be absolutely incorrect. Thus far, spiritual science has been presented to adults, and its ideas and concepts are thus clothed in a way suited to them. Merely to take anthroposophic literature intended for adults and introduce that to children would distort the whole principle of Waldorf education. And for those children who came to us voluntarily for free religious instruction, the whole point was to give them the religious instruction appropriate for their ages. Let me say it again. Religious teaching at a Waldorf school 
as well as the services connected with it, does not in any way try to introduce an anthroposophic worldview, and the children's ages are always considered. Indeed, most of the children attend, though we made it a strict rule to admit only those children whose parents wish it. Because pure pedagogy plays such a central role in our free religious instruction, which is of course Christian in the deepest sense, parents who wish their children to be educated according to the Waldorf principles and in a Christian way, send them to us to be educated. As I say, the teaching is thoroughly Christian, with the result that the whole school is pervaded by a deeply Christian atmosphere. Our religious instruction makes the children realize the significance of all the great Christian festivals of Christmas and Easter, for instance, much more deeply than is common today. The children's ages must be considered in any teaching of religion because untold harm arises when ideas and views are communicated prematurely. In a Waldorf school, students are led first to understand universal divinity in the world. You will recall that when children first come to school between seven and ten, we let plants, clouds, springs and such speak for themselves. The children's whole environment is alive and articulate. From this we can easily lead into the universal and imminent Father Principle in the world. When the rest of teaching takes the form I described, children can easily conceive that all things have a divine origin. I'm going to read that again. I believe the word imminent, which is spelled I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T, I think that's supposed to be the word immanent, but I'll let you decide that for yourself. Let me read that sentence again with this change in the word. From this we can easily lead into the universal and immanent Father Principle in the world. When the rest of teaching takes the form I described, children can easily conceive that all things have a divine origin. Thus we form a link with the knowledge of nature conveyed to children through fantasy and fairy tales. The goal is to awaken, first of all, a sense of gratitude for everything in the world, gratitude for what others do for us and for the gifts of nature. This guides children's religious feeling along the right path. It is tremendously important and meaningful to develop a child's sense of gratitude. It may seem odd, but it is a profound fact that people should learn to feel gratitude whenever the weather is favorable to our endeavors. Being able to feel gratitude to the cosmos, though only in one's imagination, deepens all our feelings in a religious sense. Love for all of creation must then be added to this sense of gratitude. If we lead children in this way through the age of nine or ten, it becomes very easy to reveal the qualities they must learn to love in the living world around them. Love for each flower, for sunlight, for rain, all deepen their perception of the world in a religious sense. If gratitude and love have been awakened in children before the age of ten, we can then develop a true sense and understanding of duty. A true inner religious feeling will never arise from a premature development of the sense of duty through commands and rules. Those who want to educate in the sense of true Christianity 
must realize that it is impossible to convey to children's souls before nine or ten years of age any understanding of the mystery of Golgotha and what it brought into the world, nor anything relating related to the person and divinity of Jesus Christ. Children are exposed to great harm, however, if we fail to introduce the principle of universal divinity before this age, and by, in quotes, universal divinity, I mean the Divine Father Principle. We must show children the divinity in all nature, in all human evolution, and how it lives and moves not only in rocks, but also in the hearts of others and in their every act. Children must be taught through the natural authority of the teacher to feel gratitude and love for this universal divinity. Thus, for children of nine and ten, we provide a basis for the right attitude toward the mystery of Golgotha. You see now why it is so important to understand the human being in terms of chronological development. Just try to see what a difference it makes whether we teach children of seven or eight about the New Testament or, having cultivated an awareness of universal divinity in nature, wait until the age of nine and a half or ten before teaching the New Testament. If we do the latter, the children have been prepared and the Gospels will live in all their suprasensory grandeur. If we teach the New Testament to younger children, it will not take hold of their whole being, but remain mere words and rigid prosaic concepts. The danger is that the children's religious feeling will harden and remain rigid throughout life, instead of living in a way that thoroughly pervades their feeling toward the world. For children of nine or ten onward, we prepare them most wonderfully to receive the glory of Christ, if they have already been introduced to the principle of universal divinity that pervades the world. This, then, is the goal of religious teaching as given in a Waldorf school, where there is an ever-increasing number of children whose parents wish it. The teaching is based on a purely human element and associated with a particular form of ritual. A service is held each Sunday for the children who are given free religious instruction. And for those who have left school, there is a service with a different ritual. A certain ritual, in many ways similar to Mass, is adapted to the children's ages and associated with the religious teaching at the Waldorf School. There is a principle that we wish to develop at the Waldorf School, and it was very difficult to introduce this into the religious instruction. It is the principle of human, as such, and in religious matters today people are not at all inclined to relinquish their own particular view. We hear much talk about a religion of the, quote, universal human, close quote, but most opinions are influenced by the views of a particular religious denomination. If we really understand the purpose of humanity in the future, we will also realize that free religious education as taught at a Waldorf school truly helps in this. Spiritual science, as given to adults, is never brought into a Walter school. Instead, we consider it our task to imbue our teaching with the object of human thirst and longing, a realization of the divine in nature and in human history, which arises from a true understanding of the mystery of Golgotha. To this end, 
we give all our teaching the necessary quality and coloring. I have already said that teachers must reach a point where all their work becomes moral activity and they regard the lessons themselves as a kind of divine office. This can be done only when it is possible to introduce elements of moral instruction and religion for those who desire it. And we have attempted to do this through the religious instruction at the Waldorf School, at least to the degree that today's society allows. In no sense do we work toward a blind, rationalistic Christianity, but toward a real understanding of the Christ impulse in human evolution. Our only goal is to give people what they need, even after all their other teaching has endowed them with the qualities of full humanity. Even when this is the case, if full humanity has been developed through the other teaching, a religious deepening is still needed before people can find, in a general sense, a place in the world appropriate to their inherent spiritual nature. To develop whole human beings and to deepen them in a true religious sense is considered one of the most essential tasks of Waldorf education. The end of Lecture 10